this really interesting cat. Silver hair, beard, tweed jacket with leather patches on the elbow, smoking a pipe. People see his picture now on my mantelpiece and they wonder if he was an author or professor because he was so distinguished looking. Or in his words, he he was kind of hoity-toy. You see, he was just this poor New York City kid who made it. His parents were poor immigrants. His dad died when he was young. He ended up in a career in the local school district. He ran the community center, the pool, the athletic fields. When I was really little, he ran a summer camp for inner-city kids, Boys Harbor, which was hosted on the Hamptons Beach Estate of one of the world's richest families then, the Dukes. I spent a lot of time with him, and I saw him interacting with folks when he went back into the city, which, by the way, was like heading into a Damon Runyon movie with him. Everybody knew him from every strata of society. And no matter who he interacted with, his kind demeanor and his approach never, never changed. I really thought about it a lot. I reflected on it, and I realized what it, what it was. He gave everybody the same full measure of dignity. You know, just as Sly Stone was just singing, everybody is a star. And a couple of other things. Being the underdog himself, he always stood up for the underdog too, and he hated bullies. I can't tell you how much he hated bullies. So what does that have to do with this show? I think he would have really liked my next guest, Danny Eschini. She had a pretty tough childhood, too, and she stands up for underdogs against the bullies. In school, she faced discrimination and bullying. Danny was a boy then, but that didn't fit her conception of who she, who she was. So she came out and has gone through the process of transitioning genders. She became involved in advocacy, is now the director of the Gender Justice League, an advocacy group she founded that fights for the rights of transgender men and women, and talk about a group that doesn't get their full measure of dignity. They face serious discrimination in terms of jobs, housing, health care, and are very likely to be the victims of violence. And as a symptom of the visceral reactions they face, the Washington State Legislature right now is debating bills about which bathrooms they can use. Danny, my guest here today, is leading the fight on that. So welcome to the show, and let's start right there. What the hell is the legislature trying to do, and why does the Gender Justice League oppose it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know exactly what they're trying to do. Um, I mean, what they say that they're trying to do is, um, a little background is that in 2006, Washington State passed the Washington Law Against Discrimination that included protections for people on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And that gave trans people the right to you know, not be discriminated against in their job, in getting an apartment or a home loan or using a shelter. Um, it helped trans youth in schools to not be discriminated against by their school district. And it also conferred um, protections of public accommodations, which is such a strange term, but that means everything from using a restaurant, going to the hospital, using buses and public transportation, to things like using sex-segregated facilities, a bathroom, a locker room, and so on. And so 
It's been a while, um, but the Human Rights Commission spent two, the last three years about creating rules that clarified for the public what does it mean to not discriminate against transgender people. And within those rules included clarity that transgender people have the right to use bathrooms consistent with the gender that they live as every day and who they know themselves to be, also known as gender identity. And this has outraged a lot of far-right conservatives who feel like this is a bridge too far, it opens the door to all kinds of things, but a lot of what has happened, a lot of the conversation has really looked past the fact that transgender people do need these fundamental civil rights protections in order to just go about their day-to-day life and not be harassed or not face violence. What would the bills do? So some there's six bills. Um, some of them would require a DNA test. There's a House bill that requires DNA testing. There are a couple bills that require... Would you have to get an ID badge then or I something? don't know. Yeah, they don't really say. They just say, you know, it's it's not it's prohibited to use a bathroom against your DNA or whatever. So I don't know how they plan to enforce it. That's oh, a good question. Okay, okay. So Maybe might... they're DNA swabbing, like <laughs> randomly swabbing people in bathrooms. They've got a little DNA lab outside yeah. the public restroom exactly. door. Exactly, yeah. Okay. They're like collecting random samples, taking things. I don't know. Um, that's that's one of my favorite bills, um, yeah. the DNA bill. And then there are the genital check bills, which are these bills that sort of require people to demonstrate that they have appropriate genitals for the bathroom that they're using. Same problem. Same problem. Right. Are they going to have like How the, do you figure that out? Right. How do you enforce that? And it's left up to store owners or the facilities that have the bathrooms to decide to selectively enforce it. So people could just walk up to you and be like, hey, you look funny to me. Show me what's in your pants. I mean, that's how you would enforce that, right? So my first question was really unfair to you because I asked you what they were thinking. And obviously you find their thoughts to be rather irrational. So Mm -hmm. asking you to describe that really wasn't fair. But there's, I mean, I've been reading the news. You know, part of it is really just this fear somehow that Mm -hmm. if transgender people use these bathrooms, that the other people in those bathrooms will face some type of risk. Yeah. That's that's the heart of it. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So their argument is that it opens the door to anybody going in the bathroom and claiming, quote unquote, claiming to be a trans person and that that will open the door to particularly, you know, they focus a lot on women, um, that women will be subject to sexual assault or see nudity in the bathroom that they don't want to see. And that's where they really have tried to hone in on their argument, which just demonstrates a pretty clear lack of understanding about who trans people are and how we live our lives, which is with modesty. Oftentimes trans people are trying to not stand out um, because we face immense amounts of violence. So last year, 25 transgender women were murdered. You know, most of those were transgender women of color. And that lives within the trans community as the constant fear that many transgender people, both transgender men and women, live with every day, knowing that that happens. And so there is this fear that you know, transgender people will make it hard to distinguish who can and cannot be in a bathroom. And the rules from the Human Rights Commission are very clear. It says that, you know, you can respectfully ask somebody if they're in the right bathroom. And it makes it very clear only women can use the women's room, only men can use the men's room. And it doesn't change the fact that there are two separate bathrooms and people have the right to not be harassed, intimidated against, intimidated or assaulted in the bathroom. And so there's already really strong laws on the books that make those things illegal. But it's this fear of who transgender people that is at the core 
of what is propelling this issue forward and that has produced all of these bills. It's just a complete lack of understanding of who we are and how we live our lives. And it misses the fear on the other side, Yes, which is that a transgender woman walking into a men's, men's room, room has fear. Yes, an immense amount of fear. Yeah, or that a transgender man is going to have to walk into a women's room and make every woman in there uncomfortable. That's the other piece that people miss, is like how transgender men who lived a portion of their life as women, they understand, like, they don't right. want to make women uncomfortable. And so being forced to use a bathroom where, you know, and that opens the door to like, if a transgender man walks in with a full beard looking like a guy, I think it will be actually more difficult to distinguish then versus a trans woman who, you know, is clearly putting forward the effort to live their lives how they know themselves to be and is doing that every day. Um, it's just kind of not very well thought out public policy making. Well, the good news is it appears that the bills in the state legislature will not survive Correct. and that the rules from the State Human Rights Commission will remain in place. Yeah, we've worked really hard <laughs> to make that happen. You've been bringing a lot of people down to the legislature. Yeah, hundreds. I think we've we the first bill that we heard, there were 300 people that signed up to testify. The second bill, about the same. So hundreds and hundreds of people have gone down to Olympia. Okay, now I'm, I'm going to return to this topic because this issue of who gets to use the bathroom turns out to be the hot-button issue in lots of other places besides Washington. Yeah. But I want to talk just a little bit about, you know, the whole point of this show is also to get to know people who become advocates, you know, who they are, how mm -hmm. they got involved, how they do their work. So I, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Yeah. I knew you grew up in Maine. Yep. At some point, you decided to come out. Yeah. When was that? Yeah, so I came out to my family, I think when I was 11, 12. I had a family member who passed from AIDS, and he identified as gay. And I had this awareness, this sense that I was attracted to boys at the time, or now men. And I really felt this pressing need to understand, because there was a lot of fear. You know, this was the mid-90s, and I was 11, 12. I didn't have a very complex understanding of HIV. And so I told my parents, came out to my parents, and they were incredibly supportive. And they did their best to make sure that I had all the information I needed and to introduce me to other younger LGBT people. And there were not a lot of, in the 90s, there were not a lot of 12, 11, 12-year-old 12 out people. And, but they tried. And so I started going to an LGBTQ youth group and met other young people who at the time identified as gay and realized pretty quickly that that didn't quite fit, that I wasn't like other young gay boys. And it took me a little bit because transgender as a concept, as an idea that people could transition their gender was not in the collective public consciousness, right? It was very, very few people. And Maine is pretty rural, has trans people in it, but in the 90s, not a lot. And not visible. Not visible. Yeah, absolutely not. And so it took a while um, for me to put my finger on it. And I found a book by Kate Bornstein called um, Gender Outlaw. And I read it and I was like, wow, this is me. How, so that must have been amazing. It was incredible. Yeah. It was like the most profound, seeing yourself reflected in something it was so profound to have a language to describe myself, to feel connected to a community to see myself reflected in another person and to feel like the feelings I'd always had, this like not being able to put my finger on 
why I never really felt like when people called me a boy, it just never resonated or I felt super uncomfortable. You know, all my friends were girls and, you know, really shied away from people even, you know, I went by Danny then because I didn't like my birth name. Right. Because Danny is kind of gender neutral. Right. And I didn't know why that was, like why I was so insistent as a young person. Um, and my mom tells like these hysterical stories of how like, you know, she calls me her little Gandhi because I wouldn't eat food until my parents called me Danny for like weeks at a time. You I was went on a so hunger strike. In- I went on a hunger strike. <laughs> I was so insistent when I was seven or eight years old. And my parents finally just like gave in and my grandparents gave in. And um, my mom loves to tell that story. And you know, that I was like always very fiery as a person and insistent that I was right. And so it took a while to come to that understanding of myself that I was a trans person and to have a language for it and to understand it was a thing that I could do and it was possible. Yeah. So it, that led to some challenges. We were talking earlier and you you told me that, you know, there were some issues at home and you ended up being homeless yeah. for a few years. School was difficult yep. when you came out. Yeah. Tell me about this. Yeah. So when I came out, I... um you know, was harassed pretty relentlessly. My sophomore year of high school is when I really started to like take steps towards thinking about transitioning, growing my hair out, being more feminine presenting, and was the victim of hate crimes, several hate crimes over several months. And I was really ashamed because my parents, my mom in particular, at that point my parents had separated, but my mom was so fearful for me. And I didn't, I was ashamed that I didn't want her to be afraid for me every day when I went to school, so I didn't tell her for several months. And then finally, in in 1998, I think it was like the second week of February, there was a vote on our statewide non-discrimination law, and we lost at the ballot box. It was repealed in a referendum. And I just like like broke down crying and um, had some friends who identified as lesbians at the time, and we were talking in our kitchen um, about what had happened to me. And the fear that we had that it was going to get worse because this sent such a clear signal to the bullies that I was facing. And my mom was in the living room and I didn't quite realize it and had overheard our conversation and came flying in and was so outraged that the school hadn't protected me. You know, she drilled down and found out that I told the vice principal, I told the principal, I told my teachers, and that everybody had basically told me I needed to toughen up and act more butch and not be so feminine. And my mom was just like outraged at this idea that I wasn't worthy of protection. And the attorney general of our state got involved and investigated these hate crimes and got injunctions against people and people were prosecuted and it became very big news. And, you know, right after this law had not passed, it was that movement moment that sometimes happens where it's a galvanizing example of how not passing legislation has a serious impact on young people's lives. And um, that just had an immense burden on my family to be in the spotlight. And even though there was some anonymity, like my name wasn't out there, everybody in our small town knew who I was. It's a small town. It's a small town. And yeah, it just, it really was devastating and put so much pressure on my mom and so much pressure on me and really took a toll on all of our mental health. And I ended up becoming homeless and uh, for about a year and change. And it's really painful to think about that period. I imagine it is. Yeah. But but you 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 came through it. Mm-hmm. Obviously. I mean, I'm sitting here talking with you and you're like this heroic person in my eyes. Sorry if I'm not trying to embarrass you, 
but you found a way through that. What was the passage through? How did you come out? Yeah, I have done a lot of thinking about that in the last couple months um, as this has come up in the legislature because I think, I, you know, there are other young people out there that are probably going through something similar. And um, I, f- I found a youth group that supported me even in being homeless and on the streets and, you know, couch hopping with friends and sleeping in storage units. <laughs> um, you know, all the things that homeless young people do to survive in Maine, there was not at the time a youth shelter, uh-huh. and so I didn't really have access to being indoors. And I was lucky enough to get into foster care, and had incredible advocates advocate to get me into the foster care system. And I found two foster dads, two gay men, who are willing to be my foster parents, and the state was willing to certify them while I was staying with them because it was such an immediate need. I mean, I was. Right so at risk and wasn't able to stably stay in school. And that really turned my life around. Just having, you know, at the time, we had lots of conflict. I was a feisty young person. I still am feisty. Very Yes, but there's something special about the teenage years. Yeah. Yes. It's totally true. As the father of three teenagers at the moment and having been one myself long ago. Yes. It's true. And I was so insistent at like, being my full self in the world and that like people just had to accept that whether they wanted to or not that was how I was going to show up and I had really good foster dads and good you know I was fortunate not everybody who goes to the foster care system has you know good caseworkers or good I had an independent living skills worker who really helped me kind of get set up for college and that really was a game changer for me I got a job working training child welfare caseworkers at DHS, Department of Human Services in Maine, educating them about the needs of young people, and was in the first class of our extended foster care in Maine, which brought, you know, support from 18 to 21, and also got a foster care tuition waiver, which let me go to a state university for free, Um, or at least, you know, my tuition was waived. That opened up so many doors and created so much stability to get an education, to be able to be in a dorm with other people my age and get pretty normal socialization and relationships and job opportunities. Yeah. And I know that that's not everybody's experience. And I feel immensely privileged that that was my experience. And that should be how the foster care system looks. And I've been particularly impacted in the story that has evolved around the jungle shooting. Tell me why. So um, it's recently come out that You know, the three young people who were involved in that shooting were in the foster care system and had left, had like, you know, run away from their foster homes and that they kind of fallen off the radar. And that is so impactful for me because I, I understand how, you know, it in some ways takes a village to raise a child. And that can be really true, especially for young people who've experienced trauma or difficulty that has led them into the foster care system. And sort of as those things have, as the story has evolved and more facts have come to light, it just seems like an unavoidable, it seemed like an avoidable tragedy for a whole bunch of reasons. And the implications have been profound in the cultural discourse in this moment about homelessness, about youth homelessness, about substance abuse and mental health. And I just see how the system that we've been underfunding, so many systems that we've been underfunding for so long, has led to, you know, the tragic loss of life, these young people facing, you know, adult criminal charges. I mean, there's, it's, the cascading effect is so profound. Yeah, the jungle is about more than mm-hmm. homelessness. It's about so much more than that. It's about the inequality and underfunding of services 
just nationwide. Yeah. Well, from your background, it's it's obvious that you would be passionate about certain issues, but somebody actually has to make a choice to do something. Yep. Well, how did that happen? How did you become engaged in advocacy and ultimately get yourself to this point of founding an organization, the Gender Justice League? Yeah. I feel like people in my life taught me, you know, at the LGBT youth group I was a part of outright, uh, youth leadership was a really key component of what they did, developed leaders, gave us speaking skills, helped us go do trainings in schools to train our peers and teachers um, so that we could prevent bullying and harassment, do HIV prevention work. That process of, I just kind of got a taste of it, which was like, I got to leverage what had been a very negative experience and share that in a way that was transformative and humanizing. And that power of connecting with other people in a way that they had never thought about these issues before was so compelling to me that I was able to humanize an issue that had otherwise been quite abstract and to take experiences that, you know, many people, it was incredibly traumatizing and got to leverage that into compassion from other people so that I could help change the way the world worked. And that experience as a young person was just so profound that it was like I was sold. That was it. That's what you're going to do. That's what I was going to do. So take me through some of the jobs you have, you've held just yeah. quickly, like like the different positions you've held in the advocacy world yeah. up to now. Yeah. So I um, have worked on HIV quite a bit. Um, when I was in undergrad and grad school, I worked on, you know, doing HIV prevention education through aid service organizations and public health with young people. I worked on foster care issues to try and create a sibling's bill of rights so that siblings who were separated in foster care had the right to visit each other in was Maine. Was this in Maine? It was in yes. Maine. Yeah. Which is, I mean, people don't think about, you know, foster care, young families, young people get broken up and then without clarity or policy, physician might never see each other until they're 18. I worked on hate crimes. Um, I worked at the Center for Prevention of Hate Violence for a number of years, building the case through research for why we needed to win this non-discrimination law, which we right. lost in 98 and won in 2005. We'd actually lost it in 2001 and then took a four-year break and came back in 2005. And so I was part of the team that went out and collected stories of discrimination, put a face to why this law was important, um, and helped to clarify for the public what these protections meant for the community. And that was incredible. I got to travel all over the state of Maine, rural parts. We had interviews in all 16 counties, Rustic, which is seven hours from Portland, <laughs> very far north. And, you know, for people on the West Coast, man, rural Maine is mm -hmm. rural. Mm -hmm. I don't think people appreciate that sometimes. Yeah. It really is. It's quite rural. Um, but there are stories there. There are LGBT people that live everywhere. And my job was to go collect those and share those because that's so profound to see that in your own community in places that traditionally had been unaddressed. It was so profound for people to hear the stories of their neighbors experiencing housing discrimination or job discrimination. So you made it to the West Coast mm -hmm. at some point. 2007. And where? what was that work? Yeah, I came here to start a trans health organization, uh, the first trans health program in Seattle called Verbena Health, which was on Capitol Hill. It was housed with Gay City Health Project. We had a clinic together. We ran health education and advocacy programs. Um, and I did that for about 18 months. And then that organization folded. <laughs> Unfortunately, our executive director had embezzled money. and That's not good. It's not. It's not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was devastating. I mean, it was devastating for the staff. It was devastating for the community. You know, when 
the staff had kind of put the pieces together, it was heartbreaking to have been building towards something that was so meaningful, like so many of the programs that were vital, right? And, and you know, that organization was focused particularly on LGBT women, and nothing has emerged since then. You know, it's now eight years later, and there's still not an equivalent organization. And so that taught me a lot of important lessons about, you know, just due diligence and being thoughtful about a whole bunch of things. So but, what did you do next? Yeah, so... I wasn't able to access unemployment insurance because it had not been paid to the state. And so I had to take the first job I got. (laughs) So I moved to San Francisco and became the national program director at Gay Straight Alliance Network. And I supported um, LGBTQ youth in 32 states across the country, um, passing safe schools legislation, mobilizing, you know, conferences and doing community education, creating Gay Straight Alliances in schools. I think there's like over 4,000 across the country now. So my job was to share best practices, give people the tools to advocate, and basically build an LGBTQ youth movement all over the country to really advance rights so for young you people. You had this really deep background and experience then in different aspects yeah. of the this advocacy community. Yeah. And at some point, I understand it was your idea, uh-huh. you decided you wanted to form something called the Gender Justice League, which, by the way, I love the title. It's like right out of Marvel Comics or something. Yeah, that was our, our point. Yeah. <laughs> we don't uh, want to take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, but it's also, you got to love the heroic superhero part, right? You can be a hero, which I've always thought is part of, you know, I've always, I said this in campaigns I've worked on and, and other activists, it's like the volunteer is always the hero is the central yeah. hero in the overall narrative because they've chosen to take action. Yeah. But I'm talking now and I want you to talk, which sure. is what were you thinking when you formed it? What did you see that was missing and what was your theory of change that led you to start this organization? Yeah, so I came back in 2011 to Seattle. I had, in the year in the 18 months that I was here, I'd made so many deep connections to people. I I basically thought, was always thinking of Seattle, it's like always in the back of my mind. My brother had moved here. I came back and um, served on the board of Ingersoll Gender Center, which is the support group. It's the longest running trans organization in the world. And they don't always brag about that, but it's totally true. I mean, they've been doing it since the 70s. It's incredible, huge community. And what I saw was this fertile ground to create a trans-led advocacy organization, which had always been my dream from like high school, to move, to just push forward in a lot of different venues things that had been largely left on the sidelines by the mainstream LGBT movement. Um, while we were pushing for marriage equality, we did not advance as quickly or as fast as we should have around trans issues. And so I joined, you know, a bunch of people, about 15 of us got together. And I remember sitting in somebody's living room and we were like, we need to do this thing. Now is the time. It was right at the start of the marriage equality um, campaign. And in fall 2012, we started to organize and in um, January 2013, we launched and we said, we're going to do a big event, Trans Pride Seattle, to create a community space to bring trans people together, to elevate our voice and public profile, to highlight some of the challenges the community is facing. And then from that, recruit people into advocacy, do leadership development. So we would you know, build the space to get the people there, recruit people at the event to then do leadership development and build a strong cohort to then go and do education and advocacy work. So shift the conversation in public policy spheres to, you know, respond to like these bathroom bills or 
to push forward. The other thing that we worked on for three years was winning health insurance coverage for trans people, which has profoundly been inf- impactful for folks to have coverage for the health care that they need that's life-saving that we'd never had before. And to build a cohort of trans voices and to give people the tools and the community strength, the collective, like, I see you, you see me, we can support each other in having these very difficult public conversations and testifying before a Senate committee where people are basically saying that your existence is going to open the door to sexual assault, rape, and pedophilia, right? That is profoundly difficult for people to sit at that chair and then share who they are in the face of hearing that opposition testimony. And it takes a community to support those individuals, right? So that they know that other people have their back, that other people are with them and that they're representing. And so that's kind of our theory of change. It's like build community, elevate the issues through, you know, the last two years we've had really profound national level speakers come to Seattle from the trans community to talk about their work. We got on the front cover of the Seattle Times the first year we did it. Every year we've had good press coverage since. And that elevates the profile that trans people are here, we're not going anywhere, and that we are going to make sure that that the public has the opportunity to come to understand who we are and what it is that we need um, to be happy, healthy, and safe. It's organizing. It is. You like organizing. I love organizing. I know. There's something really special about being with a community of people that are trying to do something. It's Nobody ever does it by themselves. Yeah. It's galvanizing. And I feel blessed. I mean, I feel pretty young to be sort of at the at some of the forefront of this. And I am so immensely thankful. I have so much support. It's it's amazing. It's more than I could have ever hoped or asked for or thought of back in Maine right. when I was in high school and I felt so alone. I never envisioned the place that I am now. I just I mean, it was like a dream, a twinkle in my eye. But now to like be living that is even in the face of all of what is very negative, always in my heart and in the back of my head, I just have this incredible community that I feel so blessed to have. Thank you, Seattle. <laughs> I love Seattle. Um, one of the things I, I laid at the front end, this issue about bathrooms, mm-hmm. right? And then the issues are so much deeper, as you're talking about. There's violence, there's discrimination, there's um, health care issues, you know, getting coverage for the things you need. All of these issues, yet the issue that comes up in state after state to try mm-hmm. to defeat the, the rights or opportunities for trans people is, but the bathrooms. We'll have to share the bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Dominic Holden wrote a long piece at BuzzFeed saying this is the Achilles heel of the movement. How do you beat it? What's the, what's the solution since you've been right in the front lines of this one? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's good old-fashioned organizing, and there are a lot of different playbooks that we've been trying to take a cue from, right? We have such a rich history of social movements to look to and to build on their model of success. And it's going to be a little bit different for trans people because we have some other cultural, we have our own unique cultural challenges to overcome. But I think part of it is humanizing and elevating the voice of trans people, sharing what our experience is like, letting people get to know us. That was a key lesson of success from the marriage equality movement, that it's partly about relationships, it's partly about familiarity, it's partly about having out invisible leaders that people can look up to and who can kind of galvanize a conversation around. And we've started to have that. Janet Mock, Laverne Cox, Caitlyn Jenner. There's a plethora of people who are now in the public eye in a way that we did not have. So they're people now. Yep, they're people now. 
And I think that that's going to be a key component to, you know, the tide is turning in our favor. We've built strong coalition. So I think that we've done some work in communities through relationships with like folks in domestic violence um, organizations, sexual assault organizations, in labor, in reproductive justice movements, and within LGBT movements. All of those folks have come together to form the Washington Safe Alliance, which is opposing these bills. And that is that has come from relationship building. And I think it's come from something else, too, as I'm listening to you. It's not just about expecting other organizations who you'd expect to be allies yeah. to be the champions, too. Yeah. Right? That was part of the reason for just forming the Gender Justice League was we have to be our own champions and not look to somebody else to be our champions. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so it like takes all of us together. I think it is helpful because I, I know when I'm acting in allyship around other issues, there is always this hesitation to not want to supplant or speak for or like to do on behalf of, because that is not, you know, many of us believe in empowering communities that are marginalized. And it's something that I'm keenly aware of, especially when I'm talking about racial justice or immigration justice, that it's like, I want to support the leadership of folks who are most impacted by those issues. And so that's part of the theory within Gender Justice League is to build a cohort of a multiplicity of diverse voices within the trans community to present our face and articulate our needs. And then I think from that, a lot of ally organizations can take the lead. They, they and much, they're they much more comfortable joining yes. when they see leadership. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, and we authentic le- leadership. Authentic leadership. And we learn so much from them, which has been, I, I mean, I feel like I've grown immensely in the last three years because they can say, well, that's a really great idea. And here's what we know from what we've done. And so it's like, you know, we're still learning and, and framing and figuring out how to do this work. But that relationship, um, has been so profound. And in healthcare work, it was like labor unions where some of, like AFSCME, um, when we were trying to win coverage for state employees, there were a lot of labor unions, SEIU, the King County Labor Council, who gave us advice about how to approach the Public Employees Benefits Board that was so helpful in thinking that, you know, I'm not a labor organizer. I have, you know, I come from a family that um, has been involved with labor um, and have been in unions or were union organizers, but it's not my, been my experience. And I learned so much about how to do that work, how to galvanize, how to present to people. It was one of the, you know, my, you know, my background some, you know, I was like a neighborhood and environmental advocate. And the deeper I got into the work and the, and the further along I got, the more important it was to kind of get outside of my own community and understand other communities, understand other interest groups and what they knew and how they were working. And for me, a huge step was one day I did the crazy thing of deciding to run for mayor. Talk about getting out of, outside of myself. And, and and Danny, I've been reading things that you're thinking about running for the state legislature in the 43rd legislative district here in Seattle. I'm strongly considering it. Um, what are you thinking here? I think that there's an opportunity to have a conversation about who trans people are, what our leadership looks like, what we can bring to the conversation. The legislature, I think, could use some new voices and new leadership that, you know, brings to the table a lot of what I think we're seeing in the presidential race as well. Millennials have spoken pretty clearly in both Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm a millennial. Um, and I think that I've just been thinking really Did hard. I just hear a Bernie Sanders supporter here? I am a Bernie Sanders <laughs> supporter. So am I. I've endorsed Bernie too. So, yeah. but 
But it gets to the thing, too, of it's not about just sitting at the table testifying. Yeah. There's a chance to actually be one of the people who can take a vote on it. Yeah, and help shape the conversation and have the closed-door meetings with colleagues and champion issues and provide a different angle to the perspective, like, you know, also bringing to the table my experience as a person who was formerly homeless and went through foster care, right, and who has worked on a lot, a huge array of issues working in schools for a very, very long time. Bringing to the table a lot of those experiences, I think, deepens and strengthens the conversation on the left um, that adds a layer of complexity that is needed to galvanize, I think, people. And, you know, having built support around issues that are quite difficult to mobilize and galvanize people around and to educate people on, educating the general populace about trans people is has been very difficult. And I've gained so many skills from that that I feel like um, there's a lot of reasons why I'm seriously considering a run, and I think I can bring some new energy into the conversation. And I happen to know from a uh, a long uh, lunch discussion one day that uh, Danny has strong opinions on a wide variety of topics as well. And I I don't, I'm not going to ask you to put out your whole platform here, but I I can attest to the fact that, um, I think that was the other reason I liked you. It appeared that we're both political junkies following every issue very closely. That's very true. I am exactly (laughs) that. I follow things very, very closely. And I, you know, I have strong opinions. Um, I'm open to being wrong. I'm very fact-based. I'm open to being wrong, but I have very strong opinions and I follow a lot of things. Well, you're going to have to develop a platform. I am. You're going to have to have an announcement. You're going to have to get your volunteers out there. Yes. You're going to, um, if you do it, you're going to have the, the ride of a lifetime. It will be a, a general election. Vote, yeah. I th- a primary and a general election. Yeah. Full vote. Yeah. There's a lot to consider. There's a lot to consider. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's the 43rd is an open seat. Brady Walkinshaw, who's the current representative, is running for U.S. Congress. Um, and so it will probably be a pretty big field if I decided to throw my hat in the ring. Um, and I think it it will be... I would I, love to hear if you have advice. I, I always go back and forth on this idea. I love that I ran for office, but I've also seen it's been really hard on people. I have a sense that you would make an exceptional candidate and based on the, the your involvement in issues and advocacy for a long time, um, that it's probably right for you. But I can't decide that for you. You're going to have to make that call because you're the one that's going to have to live with the consequences. But I also just I also think it, it would be amazing to when we talk about humanizing the issue. Yeah. Imagine when your colleagues, if you won, mm-hmm. had to actually uh, deal. Yeah. Um, with a and, transgender person on a one-to-one basis yep. and hopefully lose some of the, the stereotypes they're carrying around. I guess I'm opining here, but yeah. but that's what's needed. And I would be the first openly trans person elected to a state house in the country, which I think people don't always think about or realize. There has been a trans person who sat in a legislature in the 90s in Massachusetts, but was not open and then was outed while they were in the legislature and, and didn't win re-election. But there's never been an openly trans person who's run and one, yeah. And so that I think, in and that, of itself, that, that sends alone, such a strong in and signal. of itself, absolutely. Yeah. And now I'm just saying the same words that you're saying, which tells me we should probably wrap up this episode because <laughs> yeah. we're just going to spend the rest of the time violently agreeing with each other on a wide variety of topics. So, I got to start with a song, and I chose, you know, "Everybody Is a Star" by Sly and the Family Stone. Because it just fit my theme of you got to look beyond the surface. You got to see what people have inside them about who they are and what they're about. And you've chosen Heroes 
by David Bowie. Tell yeah. me why you chose that song and what it means to you. Yeah, when I was younger, I looked up to David Bowie because David Bowie was kind of gender non-conforming in a way. And a lot of people in my life thought I looked like David Bowie. And my friends would ask me to dress up like David Bowie. And so I always um, saw a little bit of myself in David Bowie and just the theme of heroes. I think about the people in my community at Gender Justice League in this moment and how I'm surrounded by so many heroes who are sharing their story and being so brave to be out there in the public. And so I just thought it was very fitting. Just for one day. 